what I did mention before when you asked what kind of leader I am, I lead with the foundational work. So when I was getting all those calls, people asked me like what they should be doing and they wanted advice on unconscious bias sessions. And I, I don't start there. I think unconscious bias work is important, but I don't start there. I start with, do you ask consistent questions when you interview people or does everybody ask what they feel like? Is it clear as an employee how to grow your career path or is it a mystery <laughs> that they have to sort of figure out? Is feedback given frequently and clearly or only when it's performance review time and people... So like with these foundational pieces, if that's not in order, it's really hard to build on top of that and talk about all these other nuances. Welcome, I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Today, we're back to a regular format after last week's episode about creating your own definition of success. Our guest is Camila Benjamin Fowler, Chief Diversity Officer and CSR Leader for PTC. PTC is a global technology company based in Boston that has over 6,000 employees in 30 countries. Camila describes herself as an activist, but she realized early in her career the impact that can be generated by driving change within the corporate world. We started our conversation talking about how Camila got started on this path, but pretty quickly we started talking about like the deeper layer of DEI work and how complex it is and how it requires a really deep understanding of all areas of business. It will come as no surprise that you know, many of the reasons why Camilla has been so successful doing this type of work is that she's a very passionate individual who also brings an incredible amount of discipline and curiosity. So enjoy the conversation. I think you'll learn a lot. Welcome to the podcast. Let's start the same way that I start all my conversations. And why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you're doing right now and, and maybe some of the steps that took you where you are now. Thank you so much for having me. I am first and foremost, a mom. And I was reminded of that. I mean, people say that all the time, but I was reminded of that because over the past two years or so, I've been spending lots of time, energy, camping out, lining up and uh, funding my daughter's love of Harry Styles. Yesterday, <laughs> Harry Styles and the broader One Direction sort of ecosystem. Yesterday, I got incredible news that Foo Fighters are returning. They're playing Boston Calling. That's my favorite band. I am so excited to go see this. I'm figuring it out. And my daughter and my bonus kids start freaking out. And I'm like, what is going on? One of the X One Directioners is playing the same night as ha as Foo Fighters at Boston Calling. So all of this, I can't even escape <laughs> this. Now it has turned into not mom getting excited about going to see Foo Fighters. It's how do we camp out for a uh, Nile Horan? So that just like humbled me into no matter how much I try to live my own life, I am first and foremost a mom. But it's that's a wonderful part of my life. Aside from that. I'm, I'm an activist. I'm a chief diversity officer, diversity champion and leader. I also lead corporate social responsibility at PTC where I am now. But I have a 20 plus year history of doing work in activism, social justice, working with organizations on navigating identity politics and helping companies and organizations create healthy environments. And that has ranged from academic institutions to corporate spaces to correctional facilities. Yeah. And I think what's interesting in of your career, when I look at your LinkedIn profile, is that when somebody says, I'm an activist as the first statement, you don't expect the type of companies that you've worked with. And, and you've done a lot of your work from the inside. I see here, you worked at the uh, PNG, you worked for Corn Ferry, which is one of the most respected recruiting and search firms in the country or in the world. And even, you know, PTC is certainly an incredibly respected and corporate organization. So what were the first steps that you took as you thought about taking your activism inside the corporate world? And what were some maybe of the early defining moments as you were shaping who you were? My activism started in high school. 
Um, it's not going to be a super long story. Don't worry. <laughs> Even though I'm going back that far. It started in high school. I went to, at the time, it was defined as an all-girls. It was predominantly white in the Northeast Catholic school. In that space, I was the only Black student in my grade, one of maybe three in the whole school. And as much as I felt uh, a sense of empowerment and belonging because there was just this, this infusion of gender equity work and empowerment through that, I definitely felt a difference because it wasn't meeting me as a sort of a fully dimensional growing young person. And so I was always searching for ways to make sense of myself in that space. I also came out when I was in high school as bisexual, and that was something that was just not really understood um, and well supported there. So I was, instead of sort of turning in on myself or withdrawing, I turned that into reaching out and trying to create more inclusive spaces for all kinds of people. And I took that energy into college. So my studies focused on things like race, gender, political science, but all of my extracurricular activities, if you will, were focused on on organizing for the LGBTQ plus community, on organizing for students of color, on connecting what was happening. I went to Cornell, what was happening on the Hill, as they say, to what was happening within the city of Ithaca and how we could support the community there. Um, So I found my activism by moving outwards and trying to create spaces for other people that worked. What the, the connection to the corporate experience that link happened through an internship I, I got when I was in college. My mom worked for the Gillette Company for many, many years, and I was able to get an internship there. And I feel incredibly fortunate. It was in the diversity, equity, and inclusion center of expertise, which this is over 20 years ago. And it was a very complex global team that was creating and influencing DEI work for the talent the customer experience, the overall brand. how I mean, like all the things that we're starting to hear of just evolving now, they were doing that. And I still consider P&G kind of one of the the strongest leading forces and voices in, in what's possible uh, in this work. So I very quickly saw how I could take all this, like this work that I was doing in school and the ways that I was feeling and like how people belong. I was like, oh, in corporations, they have things called employee resource groups oh, there's like a group that can influence the images and marketing campaigns that go out. Oh, like there's like a way that you can talk about developing talent that may not see other people who look like them at higher levels and help them think about career pathing or create opportunities or introduce job options or career options to communities that may not necessarily have a connection there. Um, So it was really seamless. It It feels like it should have been a harder leap, but it was pretty seamless. And I've been really fortunate in the companies that I've worked for. I've never had to choose between doing that and still doing some activist work outside of those companies. So whether it's in the music industry, where I play this work out, or it's with different nonprofits, or like I said, in prisons, like I've never felt a conflict there. So I might be a little bit more vocal and do things a little differently externally, but I definitely felt like there was a, a thread that I could pull into the corporate space. And seeing that PNG model, then Gillette, was pretty dynamic. And then when I went into Corn Ferry, I actually started with a, a company called J. Howard and Associates. So it was J. Howard and evolved into a few different iterations and then was acquired by Corn Ferry. But that initial group was started by Jeff Howard, who is just a, an incredible figure. Uh, Jeff Howard, Audra Bohannon, Mike Heider, these are sort of major players in laying the foundation for how diversity work has been happening in corporations over the past several decades, and really looking at ways of not just towing the company line, but really helping individuals internally find themselves, their voice, navigate their career path. So I've had a kind of unique journey, and I've, I've never felt a conflict around like activism versus the corporate experience. So as you are going through all these different experiences... What were some of the key moments in finding your balance and your voice as a leader? Because when you're in a corporate environment, you're driving, obviously, the activism and the diversity agenda. But at the same time, you need to balance that with the overall needs of the corporation. And to be an effective voice in that role, 
it's a it's a talent that I assume takes quite a while to develop. So what were some of the defining moments for you or, you know, moments where you're like experience that you've had maybe with inspiring leaders or even things that you've done? So first it takes a lot of patience, <laughs> a lot of patience because the pace of change is slow sometimes. And then there are moments when you're surprised and things turn and they happen very quickly. So the surprises keep you going. I, I think I learned what many people learn around how to move and be successful as a leader in an organization from observing others. And in the short period of time I was at Gillette, I was able to observe three different DEI leaders. One that came um, largely from the employment law phase, one that um, had a strong sort of depth and experience and history in the HR kind of world and was pulling together and moving and advancing what diversity looked like. And, and another leader who was really sort of groomed as a diversity leader leading across all kinds of, of ways the work plays out. So both the HR, customer experience, product, all of that. But I, I got to see them in action. And, and one of the things I love about this particular field, I have a team right now that they have exposure to the C-suite in ways that most people at their career level probably wouldn't have. So it was also accelerated learning because DEI teams are usually relatively lean. The work is is part of every part of the business, right? So you've got to understand what the business does, how they do it, how the HR piece, legal, PR, like there's so many aspects that you have to be like ready to move on and make decisions on and weigh in on, even if you're not deeply technical in that area. So the amount of sort of like savvy, intelligence, ability to absorb information quickly, working with multiple stakeholders, like jumping in on in a moment, like watching those leaders move is what I think helped me develop even faster. So deep observation. And my background is also in anthropology and I'm curious, I'm curious, right? So I'm kind of like studying people and I'm, th that curiosity factor is leading me to, to quick learning. So that was one piece. The other thing that helped me find confidence in my voice was when I leaned in more to who I was. And when I kind of embraced my hair story, so let me say more about this. I've always had a, a like an interest in like hair and aesthetic and how we show up in places. And, and some of your listeners may be familiar with the challenges around hair and acceptance that have happened in different professional settings over, over the years and the Crown Act and all, and all of that. So I made a choice pretty early on in my 20s that I was going to wear, I had at the time a big, beautiful afro that I was going to wear that into spaces. And at Corn Ferry, I was out there consulting and working with Fortune 500 companies, all levels going in. Sometimes I still think, my goodness, I was like, I didn't even know what I was thinking. You know, I was too young to consult. <laughs> but they listened to me. But I, I did know what I was talking about. But you know, as you get older, you're like, wow, I was really young in these rooms and like making recommendations. But I was walking into these spaces closer to my authentic self. And that there's something really powerful about just saying, I'm going to walk into the space where nobody looks like me, where I'm there, there seems like there's a, a something, you know, the dynamic is a little bit off the power shift because of my age, my level, my, my tenure, my years of work experience. And I'm walking in in a way that they, that's not expected and sometimes not embraced and still knocking it out of the park. Like that's, that's what really helped me feel more comfortable in my voice. It doesn't mean that I didn't have moments of feeling imposter syndrome or, you know, wondering if I was in the right field or feeling like I, I didn't belong in the room, right? Through, through the imposter syndrome piece. But there's a level of sort of confidence I built over the years, kind of being able to connect to who I am authentically and be in those spaces that really helped me define my voice. And then the last thing I'll say is the more years I've spent in the DEI world, I'm still learning every single day. It is one of the most dynamic, fast changing industries that are are there, like understanding how identity and sociopolitical economic dynamics shape an organization and how they move and how they think. And then it connects back to people and people's experiences and upbringing. Like all of that stuff is messy <laughs> and ever changing. But the more years I have doing the work, 
it's like, oh, this is this is real. It's deep. It's complex. It does require a level of discipline. And, and so I'm starting to appreciate the discipline in ways I haven't before. And I think that that probably in the last five years, I've really stepped into my voice as a leader too, just feeling much more confident in, in the work itself and the power that the work can have. So continuing on this, you said that in the past five years, you're like stepping in your voice as a leader. W- what is the type of leaders that you aspire to be? What are some of you know the, the core principle that you try to apply when you lead your team? I had a mentor once who said that she's interested in not just developing people, but people, she's interested in developing people who are serious about their own development. And I carry that. And I really like... I'm, I'm a leader that's always looking at whatever development means. It could mean aspiring to a higher level. It could mean growing in a skill. It could mean creating a life where you have balance. So maybe you don't necessarily want to be in the C-suite, but you want to create a life where you feel like every day you can go into work, make an impact, be successful, and still have the balance or the integration that you need with other things in your life. So whatever life you want to create, that it's by design and not by default. And so I'm a leader that works with her team to create an experience that is by design and not by default. Um, sometimes they wish I wasn't so excited <laughs> about that. I'm like, we just did our goals work and they're like, oh my gosh, really? Yeah. Like, what are your personal goals? It's important. It's bigger. It, we know this. It's bigger than the company. It's bigger than the task list that we have today. Because if you're not feeling like there's equity amongst what you have to offer what the organization needs and what you're passionate about, then, and that comes from this top uh, top model that many organizations use. If, if you're not finding some equity, it's not always going to be even, but at least you feel like, okay, at, at some point, all this comes together. You lose people. They get tired. They burn out more easily. They're not as fulfilled. They don't, they're not as creative. It's interesting because I feel that um on the latter stage of age, I'm, I'm in my late 50s. And when I talk to my peers, I hear a lot of conversations around Generation Z, you know, Generation Z, how they're lazy. And to me, what that fails to account is that I think that this is a generation that has a different trade-off and understanding of the expectations that they should have towards an organization. And I think that when the organization has that understanding, you actually end up in a really powerful union. Is that what you're seeing? Yes. And you, know, you work in a much larger organization than I do. So, yes, I think you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And prospective employees are watching for that. And when they get signals that that's the case, then you rise to the top of their list, right? It's um, it's definitely weighing in. So absolutely, I, I agree with that. I also try to lead with vulnerability and empathy, while at the same time being direct and calling out moments where things need to be addressed, you know, and being transparent about that. And, and I do that and it gets hard you know, I've had I've had a couple of experiences lately where I had to call out actions or behaviors that just weren't quite right. And as leaders, you know, we need to find ways to do and there are many models and ways to sort of walk through. You can have your cheat sheet of like, do this, ask this, do this. But we have to find ways of dismantling those moments because many folks who don't have positional power and authority may not have the ability to challenge, you know, if somebody says something that's inappropriate or there's a microaggression or or they feel like there's not a sense of psychological safety and they don't want to challenge it. Like every time I speak up, I, you know, I, I get shot down or I, every time I offer an idea, I'm always overlooked. Like, so if we don't challenge those moments as leaders, it makes it much harder for our teams to do so. Um, again, and that's stifling creativity. So everything I do, I, I try to come back to what's going to help like light up the people around us so that they can do great things so that we can have more fun and, you know, be more creative and get a better output. So this is actually sparking a really interesting question. That's something that it's a line of thought that I'm going through myself right now with my partners or building your organ- our organization, which is when you start out and you're establishing a culture of empathy and vulnerability with your team, sometimes 
it may be misunderstood as lower expectations. It is very easy to create a culture where everybody's friendly and there's not a lot of expectations. It's just as easy to create a culture where you have a lot of expectation and you're enforcing them with fear. Mm-hmm. You know, people are terrified of the boss and they're going to do it because they know that they're going to get yelled at or there's going to be consequences. The hardest thing is to balance having high expectations and creating still an environment that's of empathy and vulnerability. So I'm curious if you have any <laughs> advice mm-hmm. because I think that in the long run, these are the leaders that are going to succeed given the cultural environment we're now, but it's the most difficult thing to do. So I was wondering if you have a perspective on that. I do. And what you're touching on is the body of work that's rising within the DEI field, which is, it's always been there, but it's kind of, it's, it's kind of coming to the top of the, the programming list for many DEI leaders. And that's what I mentioned before around psychological safety Amy Edmondson has done a great deal of work in this area. So I would encourage, you know, looking at her TED Talks and there, uh, she has a couple of books out and things like that that kind of walk through how to do this. But essentially what it says is that you, we're not lowering expectations. It doesn't mean that you always have to, you know, you never de- deal with conflict. Um, it doesn't mean that you avoid giving hard feedback. Some of it has to do with, leading with curiosity, thinking about the tone that you're using, thinking about the medium in which you're communicating to the person and being sure that as you're working with like, let's say you have a, t- a team of five people, you know, that you're, you're trying to, to be more, you can't overthink it or over-engineer, but try to be more intentional about how you interact with each team member. Because sometimes it's not even that you're being dismissive to Dino, it's that every time Camila speaks, you listen intently and it's clear, right? So sometimes we create this dynamic because I happen to go to the same school that Camila went to and she's someone that I, you know, I have a rapport with her. So I listen to her more. And then when Dino speaks, I kind of take notes and, but I don't really acknowledge it. So all of a sudden you create this dynamic. And then if there is an issue, like let's say something does come up and you have to address a hard issue, you might have much more rapport and ease with Camila than you will with Dino because you haven't built that relationship with him. So some of it is like the basics of interpersonal relationship building, (laughs) thinking about your approach, being a little intentional and being sort of equitable about how you disperse your attention and your time and create space for people to share their voices. There's some great work out there in building inclusive meetings. So you create, you know, maybe people need agenda ahead of time so they can have their thoughts together. Or maybe you have a, a section of your meeting that's all for feedback. And you, you know, that's when everybody gets to sort of work through feedback for all of the things instead of shutting folks down mid sentence. So, you know, whatever dynamics work for you, but I, I would circle back to, I think Amy Edmondson's work is, is fantastic in this area. And it was endorsed by Google as well. Like Google sort of, I don't know if you've seen this research, but they talked about some of the most effective teaming that is out there and all the factors that you think might play into that kind of fell apart and psychological safety came up to the top like that's what makes an effective team is creating a sense of i can learn safely i can challenge safely i can you know iterate on my ideas and ideate with my team and then come out with whatever it is we want to move forward with without fear of of not being heard or respected or those kinds of things like that comes first and then everything else flows from that That's great. I want to go back for a second to your personal path. You not only are working in a corporate environment, but you also are working in academia, etc. What is the interest there? And how do the two experiences help support becoming, you know, who you are? I've always wanted to be a professor. Like always. (laughs) I have many dreams. Many ones, one's a rock star. One's a professor. (laughs) But for many years, I've said I would love to at some point, be in the space to kind of really help solidify DEI as a discipline and teach this, even to folks who don't want to necessarily become chief diversity officers, you know, anybody who's working in an organization can use this information because it affects all parts of the work. But also, it's just, it's another lens to assess. It's like, it's, for me, 
it's like walking into business and knowing nothing about finance, right? You got to have at least the foundational pieces to operate a bit of business acumen. So I've, you know, I've been thinking about that. And I was approached by Framingham State University. They had a, a course in managing global diversity that was built uh, several years ago. And, and the instructor who was running that course was was leaving the organization, the, the the university and they were looking for someone else. And they, they intentionally, their graduate program looks for practitioners, right? People who are in, in the work to teach. And so I was looking at all of the things I have to juggle in life. And I said, all right, I don't know if I can fit this in, but I got it. This is, I got to try it. I got to stretch. And it was a great stretch for me. I, I've learned so much in the process from the students because most of the students are working in HR functions. They have real life problems that they come into class with and I learn from and, and we're able to talk through. So this first step into academic, the academic space, so re-entry, because I came, you know, I was in grad school and kind of playing it there, but like sort of officially in this kind of role has been incredibly rewarding and super tough <laughs> in, in some ways. Uh, but it's a journey that I hope I hope to continue. And I as I work both with uh, Framingham State, but also other practitioner groups around DEI, I'm constantly knocking at the door of how do we really create more of a discipline and a blueprint for people around the work? Um, Because you have sort of pop-up boot camps or courses, Georgetown, Cornell, they have certificates in the work, which is very good. But I think there's still an opportunity to build that work out even more. So part part of my draw is because I see the need for it in the field. And then part of it was just because selfishly, I told you I want to be a professor. So here I am. <laughs> I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share like a setback that you had and how that impacted defining your values and, and the leader that you are. You know, I kind of shared a little bit about my, my high school experience. And I shared with you the outcome of lots of work internally that I had to do to make sense of who I was. And that is an ongoing journey because even today in the position that I'm in, there's still those moments where you look around and you don't see a lot of folks like you. Um, You're doing work in a field that may or may not be fully understood. When your colleagues dig in and understand the breadth and depth of expertise that it requires to do what you do, they're like, oh... I don't know. They think that you're just sort of planning parties and socials and <laughs> it's like it's way bigger th- than that. So many of the setbacks have been my own self-talk and how how I value my worth and my own ability and my own accomplishments and achievements. It's more like 80-20, 20% of the time I made, you know, and every time, every once in a while I just slip back, but that gets hard. And then some of the other setbacks, like I will say the beginning of 2020 around the Black Lives Matter movement, I almost hung it up because as much as for many people, it was an accelerator, a catalyst into incredible change and investment. You know, you've never seen so many chief diversity officer roles available for me, it was like, I told you, it started this over 20 years ago. It brought me to tears to think the amount of phone calls I got from people who were apologizing for things they never did to me. I'm like, I don't know what's happening here. <laughs> like, they, they, it's like they're calling everyone they knew who was Black. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, why are you calling me? Or asking me to come in, right? <laughs> or asking me to come in and, and do a talk. Or and, and I, the reason why it felt like a, it, it was a setback and I almost stopped what I was doing is because all I could think of is, are you still going to be here two years from now? Are you still going to be here three years from now? Not all of them are. So it's interesting. We were talking earlier about the fact that uh, through a series of scheduling coincidences, this episode is going to end up coming out on Martin Luther King's holiday. Yeah. You know, you, you brought up like a really important topic, which is with uh, the George Floyd and Black Lives Matter situation two years ago, there was this kind of like explosion. And then I think the combination of the economic uncertainty that we're in right now and the fact that there's other 
topics that are more top of mind for the general population, there's been a little bit of a slowdown. So what is your assessment of where we are right now in terms of the progress that's been made and the momentum that's staying? I, I am hearing stories of reduced funding happening, and not even in just diversity, equity, inclusion, or belonging programs, but in talent programs. What I did mention before when you asked what kind of leader I am, I lead with the foundational work. So when I was getting all those calls, people asked me like what they should be doing, and they wanted advice on unconscious bias sessions, and I, I don't start there. I think unconscious bias work is important, but I don't start there. I start with do you ask consistent questions when you interview people or does everybody ask what they feel like? Is it clear as an employee how to grow your career path or is it a mystery that they have to sort of figure out? Is feedback given frequently and clearly or only when it's performance review time and people... It's like with these foundational pieces, if that's not in order, it's really hard to build on top of that and talk about all these other nuances because you don't know what's going on. So it is discouraging to hear that some of the talent work is being underfunded now, or that's where savings are, they're looking for savings. There's some companies that are still pushing ahead and some, but I, you know, I have, I also have some acquaintances that are in the search world and they said, they said that there's been a considerable drop in search for CDOs. And then there's a, there's a little bit of an uptick happening again now, but it's certainly not to the same level. And it's not because all those roles were filled before. It's just, you know, the, the investment, priorities have shifted. So that's an indication that a bit of fatigue may be setting in. And then I'm sure, you know, folks have seen tons of articles around diversity fatigue. I, th I think it's to be seen where we are. You know, I think we get very desensitized to certain things like MLK Day, right? We sort of know it comes around. Hopefully there's some sort of service activity that's promoted within your organization. But the spirit of, of the work and the recognition of the moment, I think, can get lost I'm not discouraged fully, but I think we took maybe a, maybe five steps forward and two and a half back. <laughs> you know, we're definitely much further along than we were before in terms of the value of this work, but there has been a bit of backsliding. First of all, I loved your answer because I normally ask people, what advice do you have for people who want to start that? And I love the fact that you answered that with the idea of the foundational work. I have a question that builds actually on something that you said that is, you know, everybody was hiring CDOs. So one of the places that did some of the best work in, in the Black Lives Matter era in the press, surprisingly, was the NFL Network where they really created space for a lot of coaches and, you know, and players to really be incredibly thoughtful. They used to have these panels with professors and coaches. And one of the things that struck me at the time, you know, as they were discussing the Rooney Rule and the fact that ultimately teams end up hiring people that all look the same, is the fact that there is not a structured development process to create candidates that are appealing. And the example that they brought up, which I thought was fascinating, and is that there's a role in the football team, which is basically the gopher for the head coach, the offensive coordinator, and the defensive coordinator, which is a place where you get exposed to everything. And that these roles, because they're not considered important, always end up being filled by, oh, the friend, you know, the son of the other fellow coach, et cetera. And one of the things that um, the coaches were demanding at the time is like, you have a more structured process for that. So when I look at corporate America and, and what I see, I see a rush to hire in the diversity space, people that are diverse, but I don't see a real effort. So it's great that a lot of my you know, LGBTQ plus friends and African-American friends are now CDOs, but I don't see any of them become chief HR officer or taking that experience into CEO, CMO, et cetera. So what are some of the steps that need to happen to start pushing that next step where instead then being focused in positioning leadership in DEI, we're creating channels for people to have leadership role all over the organization. Yeah. So I hear three things in your question. I almost 
I want to see if I can address all of them. So one is there are roles that if, if you don't spend time really kind of understanding how growth and opportunity happens in your organization, the roles like the one you mentioned get written off as not as important but they become incredibly important in setting you up for future success. So they may be some of the intern opportunities, which we know often will go to friends and family. <laughs> I was a beneficiary of that. I was, you know, my mom worked there as an intern, not exclusively, but that can happen. Or, or even some contractor roles in, in companies. So I think one thing is understanding how movement happens and then not being afraid to go further into the organization to other levels and feeding the pipeline of talent that you want to see, you know, rise to levels of management, middle management and, and beyond there, starting there, where some of the populations that you may be wanting to increase in your company where you can pull them in. So that's one, right? And I think that's a brilliant example, right? So how do you how do you plan for that? And you can, I mean, that's something that we're actually doing at PTC right now. The other thing is uh, the CDO role. And it's actually a much more diverse pool of people than than you think. And it's not just people of color. There's actually a, a broader range of folks who are sitting in these CDO roles. But going back to what I mentioned earlier about the solidifying the discipline and getting really clear on the scope and the breadth of the work, you'll see that CDOs play in so many arenas that they're actually really well suited for board roles. And if you do it the right way, you know, depending on the organization, you mix in some other parts of the business could be primed for different C-suite roles as well, but it's never been considered as such. So that's part of my goal as well as to kind of like show that, um, and I have an amazing manager who actually sees this and says, the, the way that you're able to move and navigate and step in, like, you know, many board seats, they don't have expertise in every committee, but they have to be able to weigh in, right? They're not in the workings of the... So there's there's a path there. It just hasn't been fully realized yet. And I think that there's a path that we can kind of develop and, and lobby for. So that's one of the things. But just in general, how do you create more diversity amongst leadership? It's intentional development. I think many folks who have risen to the level of the C-suite or C-suite minus one or two... They do that because they're being unintentionally groomed. Remember, we talked about Camila and Dino and who's so well. So, Camila gets all the attention. She gets the stretch assignments. Dino doesn't. All of a sudden, an opportunity comes out. Camila does well or she fails, but I cover for her because I know she's really good. You know, this gives her momentum and then it, it creates a path towards those high level positions. So, if we're not intentional about how we coach, mentor, and sponsor talent, then you end up with the same kind of profile that you typically get. But it's it's intentionality and looking at, you've got a lot of people who are at the manager level or one below, senior manager moving into director level who could be future leaders of many corporations, but they need intentional sponsorship and investment. That's great. I want to move a little more to the personal. My, my first question normally is to ask people if they have an activity or a passion outside of work that it's important to them. I'm going to cheat a little bit with you because you and I actually crossed path at a concert that you had organized where my wife was singing in. I actually, based on that concert for a while, thought that you were a full-time professional singer and musician. <laughs> and then when I found out that you were actually operating more in my world, it was a great surprise. So what role is music played in your life? And how does your music world influence what you do in your sort of traditional professional world? My dad's family is from Florida, Boston and Florida. And it's sort of the African-American, more close to like an African-American experience that I had there. My mom's family is from the Virgin Islands, St. Kitts, Antigua and Caribbean. And that's the family that I grew up with, my mom and my grandparents. And music was always on in the house, particularly music from those regions. And so that was my sort of in the midst of a U.S. experience. And I was able to pull into like the culture from St. Kitts and from Antigua and mainland. The mainland U.S. experience was kind of 
it was present for me and I can connect with it, but I was at home, I was always getting sort of these hints of West Indian Caribbean or the US Virgin Islands, right? So that kind of thing. So for me, it was always like, on those days that I came home from school where I didn't feel like I belonged, I come in and, you know, I remember my grandmother would have music playing and like, there was just like, a, it just felt like sort of home. So for me, I've, I've always connected music with a, a sense of sort of comfort and groundedness. And in my high school years, I also discovered The Doors, right, which became one of my favorite bands. So that was another, talk about finding my voice, um, just operating in this space where no one expects me to listen to The Doors. And that's what I'm, I'm going from The Doors to Etta James in my room. That's like, I'm connecting equally to both of these genres and um, the voices and the passion and the music. And so I've carried that through. And when I was sort of late 20s, early 30s, I started looking around the Boston music scene and trying to find a place to land. And so I love going out to see bands, but I wouldn't see many women playing rock music. And I wouldn't see many women of color at all. And when I would do karaoke, I would do like Doors, Foo Fighters. I wouldn't see anybody. They was, I would get like, oh my gosh, you know this song? And I'm like, well, yeah, it doesn't. I mean, people know it's like, it's out there. It's not, but it was shocking. So a very close friend of mine, Christina Alexander, who is an amazing uh, artist and vocalist and also does DEI work. She, she leads DEI and social responsibility work for Wicked, the musical. She and I got together and said, can we create a space to highlight women of color, women and non-binary folks who aren't typically highlighted in, in this industry. And so G-Rock was kind of what we started. And we did shows at the Hard Rock Cafe and um, other venues. And we, we created space for, for artists to tell their story and just kind of be in a, in a place where they weren't questioned or exotified because they, they love this, this music. So my activism played out through that. You know, when you don't have a home, you, you create one, right? You create one, you create a community. And over time, I've created more community within the music scene here and in other pockets of um, mostly the US, but even outside through an organization called Women in Music. And um, that's been really powerful, kind of building connections with folks who are supporting um, women, non-binary underrepresented folks in the music industry. So it's it's a bit activism, it's a bit like good for the soul and and then I also just, you know, it's therapeutic for me to to be in spaces where I can express myself that way. That's great. Now my next question is always my favorite question in the show it is in the business world you end up with all these clichés or expressions that at some point lose meaning. What is one of these expressions that drives you crazy? <laughs> There's somebody I did a little a little homework and I was thinking about this. You know, one might actually come back to what you're talking about, the Rooney World, diverse slate and diverse candidate. What is a diverse candidate? You have a diverse group of people, but what's a diverse candidate? Because it, if you look at someone who may represent optically to you, let's say white male, let's say that's what you see. They are more than a two-dimensional person. There's other things there. It does not mean that they're have to navigate the same level of challenges that I might have to, but you don't know their full story. So diverse candidate is a very othering kind of statement that gets thrown around all the time. Like they're a diverse candidate. Well, diverse to what or to whom? And then you pull that into the diverse slate and I'm like, tell me what kind of diversity are you after? So is it a gender diverse slate or is it an ethnically diverse slate? Because otherwise it just doesn't make sense. So those are the two things that are like hot buzzwords. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you saying? Um, and that makes the Rooney rule super hard, right? Because then you come down to like one diverse candidate and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> so the Rooney rule is a really good foundation, by the way. I challenge us to think about like having more candidates who represent dimensions of diversity that need to happen in, um, but yeah, I think those those two in combination get under my skin. Great. And now final question, I call it food for the soul or food for the body. And you can choose both. But either if you're going to go the body route, a recipe or a dish or a drink that you love, or if you want to go the soul um, route, uh, either a piece of music, a movie, a book, poem, whatever, a piece of art that feeds your soul. Just about everything in the Food Fighters catalog. I mean, I'm wearing a hoodie right now. <laughs> and my first, one of my first all company meetings at, at PTC, I wore a t-shirt and I'm like, I'm serious. In fact, my logo, when, when I don't have my camera on, that's what it is. Uh, why is that? I, 
you know, there's, there's some things that just move you and the music is to me ex- extremely soulful and very much around playing with moments of silence. Right. And so there's like all of these dynamics that happen in their music that it's unexpected and it feels like kind of my personality. Right. So there's something there. And then there's an energy that comes through when, when I do sing that music. So that's, that's my final answer. It's all about the food right now. <laughs> what was the record that was the spark for you? Well, best of you was the first song that I heard was like, what is, I mean, I've heard the other music, but that was the first song that like hit me because I, I wanted to sing it. So there's like all of the other sort of old school songs like Breakout and all other stuff, which I love, but Best of You was the first song I wanted to sing. And then my friend Christina mentioned, I heard her sing it with so much soul and power that it just like, it still to this day, like makes me emotional. So that was the tune that, you know, it was a band that I really liked turn into, oh, this is a band that it's going to be with me for the duration. That's great. Camila, thank you so much. It was such a rich and thoughtful conversation. I learned a ton. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Stick around because after the credits, I'm going to play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. You can find Camila on LinkedIn at linkedin.com backslash in backslash Camila Benjamin Fuller. And I'm going to spell that for you. K-A-M-E-E-L-H B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-F-U-L-L-E-R. And as usual, you can find more links about Camila on the episode page of the podcast website, al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com and follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at al4edp with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, arranged, and recorded by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williamson bass. And now, here's a song, Just Wanna Know That It Mattered, by Susan Cattaneo.
just wanna know 